If you have your Bibles, we're starting a brand new sermon series. Woohoo! It's better than the first day of football, right? Come on, people. I got a lot of work left to do today. First and second Thessalonians, two for the price of one. This is our uh, double book sermon series. It's going to take us all the way up until uh, a, Christmas, a couple weeks before Christmas where we'll do a Christmas series. And I'll tell you why pastors preach on first and second Thessalonians. Give you a little insight. It's because we want to talk about the end times and we're afraid of Revelation. It's like, I don't need to touch Revelation. No, I want to talk about the end times. People in my church want to know about the end times. I know. First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. Because that's what the Apostle Paul talks about when he talks about the, uh, when he writes to, to the Thessalonians. Talks about the end times. It's a little different than Revelation and it's a lot easier for pastors. But in addition to that, it's really interesting. As a matter of fact, whenever I go and I study uh, one of these, so the books from Romans, really through Jude, and, and really we could say Revelation as well, but especially Romans through Jude, we call them the epistles or the letters. They're situational literature, right? It's like somebody wrote you a letter and sent it to you in the mail, or you wrote somebody a letter based on some circumstances that you knew were going on in their life, some trial that they were having, some hard times, something that was going on. You sat down and you wrote them a letter. People still do that. There is still a U.S. Postal Service. You wrote them a letter and you sent it off to them. And these letters that we have in this section of the New Testament are just that. They're, they're situational literature that were written by a man of God, in this case the Apostle Paul, to a, a church, a group of people, or a group of churches in some cases, uh, addressing specific issues. And it just so happens that this church, and we're going to find out, I'm going to give you some background to it, but it's a young church. When Paul writes these letters to this church, it's only a few, probably just a few months, maybe even a, less, a month or, or less old. It's not an old church, and Paul had just planted this church. We'll look at that and talk about it. But what's happening is like in the culture, some events were taking place, some political events were taking place, some, some different things were happening that were causing the people in that day to think about what Jesus had talked about and what they had heard that Jesus had said about his second coming. And as is the case in most every time when people start to think about the end times, things are getting skewed a little bit. When people are talking and thinking about eschatology and end times events and the second coming of Christ, in that day, they were interpreting the end times events based on their experiences and the experiences that they were having. And I'll tell you, not much has changed in 2,000 years. They talked about, uh, Jason and, and Gerilyn, they talked about COVID, right? It's really interesting, some of the stuff that I heard people talk about in COVID. Some of the wacky theology that I heard Christians talk about during COVID, right? One of my favorite was like, this is the mark of the beast. Don't take this. It's the mark of the beast. I'm pre-trib, pre-millennial rapture guy, so I believe I'm going to be out of here before the mark of the beast comes. This is the mark of the beast. Don't take the mark of the beast. No. And I wanted to say to people, hold up. Let's make sure that our, our like theology matches with the stuff that we're freaked out about, right? Because what usually happens is something crazy goes down in culture. Christians react by like, Jesus, come back now, please. And then we get these wacky views of what it's going to look like and what it's going to mean when Jesus comes back. Do you guys remember a season called the 1980s? Some of you remember that? Like, dude, people, yeah, I was a child of the 80s. I know it explains a lot, right? I was a teenager in the 90s that explains even more. 
But people got crazy with theology, and they were making these big, long charts of stuff that was going to happen. They were taking, like, you know, Russian military things and, like, one-to-one equating them with stuff in the book of Revelation. People were selling out prophecy conferences, and it was all because of this end times fervor that was related to things that were happening in our culture. Guys, it happens all the time. And that's exactly what was happening right here in the first century. That these Thessalonian Christians, and you're going to see that they lived in a big metropolis as part of the great Roman Empire. And they were doing some things as Christians that they were, they were doing some things that were seen by the greater culture to be subversive religiously. And they were facing persecution because of it. And their minds naturally went to, come Lord Jesus. And that's perfectly fine. But what we'll see as we go through these two letters is, come Lord Jesus meant something far different to them than what it actually meant to Jesus. And it was causing them to live in a way that wasn't faithful to Jesus or faithful to his word. So what I love about First and Second Thessalonians is the reason that, that we've called this series In the Meantime. The whole idea of these two letters as Paul writes to these people is that he's saying this is how we faithfully follow the Lord Jesus as we await his return. That it is okay to look forward to the second coming of Christ. That we should be excited about the end times. That there are some real specific things that we'll see as we get deeper into these books related to the rapture of the church and related to uh, something called the man of lawlessness and the day of the Lord and some of these particular things. But what really matters is living faithfully for the Lord in the meantime. Like we live in the meantime right now, and no matter what's going on in our culture, no matter what's going on in government, no matter what's going on in the military, no matter what's going on, that God's called his people to live faithfully in the meantime. And that's what these books are about. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 says this, Paul... That's the Apostle Paul. Silvanus, that's another name for Silas. So in Acts, when you hear Paul and Silas, it's the same guy. And, and we know that, that Silas, Silvanus, is one of the guys that traveled around quite a bit with Paul. And then Timothy, and you're familiar with Timothy uh, and the books that Paul wrote to him. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And there's something that's missing here um, that's in most of Paul's letters when he writes right at the very beginning. He usually says, Paul, an apostle. When he writes to the Thessalonians, as well as when he writes to the Philippians, he just says his name. Most of the times when he was writing to other churches, he was leaning on what was known as apostolic authority. He was coming to bring them an important message, and he needed to lean on his authority, usually because other people were challenging his authority. He doesn't do that here or Philippians. And incidentally, the book of Philippians and the book of especially 1 Thessalonians are the two most positive and upbeat and encouraging letters that Paul wrote. And he essentially is saying, I'm writing you as a friend. I'm your friend. And these other two men that are with me who you know, we're writing to you as your friends and as people who love you and care about you. And the whole tone of this letter is going to be one of thankfulness and care for this church that he just planted. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And I want to tell you just a little bit about this church and about the city that it was located in. Because as I said, when we read these letters, we're, we're reading someone else's mail. And it's important to know the mail to whom, the, the people to whom the mail was written and the place where it was written. And, and some of those things have bearing on why we, uh, how we interpret it. I don't want to bore you to death, so I'm just going to give you a little bit. 
And I'll say this, in our sermon supplement, which you can get again through the app or through our website, I've listed just a bunch of resources. If you want to dig deeper, feel free to dig deeper uh, through those resources. Just lots of things that I've put in there, um, some more exercises that you can do to study, like the next week's sermon text, so that when you come in on Sunday, you're already familiar with it. Lots of things. So check out the sermon supplement. But a few things I want you to know about this church in, in Thessalonica. This was a church that Paul planted on his second missionary journey. You know, Paul did at least three missionary journeys, um, and this was planted, a church that he planted on his second missionary journey. Acts chapter 16 will shed some light. 16, 17, uh, and 18 will shed a little bit of light. You can go over there if you want to. But just see how God was directing the Apostle Paul to each of the places that he had him go. Acts 16, verse 6 says this, And when they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. The Spirit of God is guiding and directing Paul exactly where he wanted. If you have those maps in the back of your Bible, those are kind of cool. That is a good time that you can pull those out and look at them while you're listening to me. Or if you have a phone, you can look them up or look something else up and pretend like you're looking those up and, you know, it'd be fine. But the maps kind of show you where Paul went. I want you to realize that the Spirit of God was actually directing each of Paul's steps. So it says, when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing through Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The Spirit of God is opening a whole new mission field. And if you look at those maps again, you will see that Macedonia is a ma was a major region in the Roman Empire. It was a major portion of, of Greece at that time. And so the Spirit of God is leading them to a whole new mission field. Paul thought he was going to go in a different direction, but the Spirit of God is leading them to this mission field, saying this is the place I want you to go and the place I want you to be part of. It's interesting what happens as they do that. The first church, that the first city that they come to is the city of Philippi, and they plant the Philippian church there. I won't read you all the verses, but you'll notice that Paul and, and his companions, they go to this new mission field. They find some people. They start a church. And when they started the church, immediately difficult times ensue. Immediately opposition ensues. Acts 16, verse 16 says, As they were going to the place of prayer, they met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. This she kept doing for many days. Paul, I love this, because some of you guys are going to relate to this. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, right? This little girl's following him around. Hey, 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 hey. Paul just gets annoyed. Now, he doesn't do what I do when I get annoyed. I'll tell you that much. Turned around and said to her in the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. He frees this girl, right? He frees the girl. She's no longer possessed. That's a great thing. That's amazing. He's doing something really cool. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. They're ticked. This little girl has been saved, and they're upset because there goes my gain. There goes my income. Well, watch the next verses. Verse 20, they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. 
they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. Here's what I'm going to show you over and over again. The gospel of Jesus always upsets the religious status quo. The gospel of Jesus always confronts the religious status quo. And ladies and gentlemen, I need you to know that all cultures at all times have a religious status quo. The Pacific Northwest of the United States in the 21st century has a religious status quo. They said, we're irreligious. That's a religious status quo. They were, we're spiritual, not religious. That's a religious status quo. The status quo here and now is this. You can believe whatever you want. You just can't believe that you're right. Church, that's the religious status quo. You can believe whatever you want, but don't tell me that I'm wrong for believing something different. And that's the, that's the ethos, the religious ethos of our culture. That's what people generally ascribe to. Some of your unsaved neighbors and coworkers and friends and family members, that's what they ascribe to. And it's a religious status quo. And here's what happens. When the gospel comes to town, the rela- religious status quo is disrupted and there are always problems with that. There's always opposition to that. Paul saw that when he came to Macedonia. I'll explain in a moment a little bit more of the religious status quo that they were going against. But I want you to see that as soon as he's there, as soon as he's in this new region, he's in Philippi, and he comes up against it. They leave Philippi, and they're going to go to the next town. The next town is Thessalonica, chapter 17, Acts 17, 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it is necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. We call this the gospel, right? We call this the good news of Jesus. Did you know that Greco-Roman people in that day had a gospel? When the great Caesar Augustus was born, do you know how they announced his birth? This was at a time before this, but with the ensuing emperors, the same thing held true. But when Caesar Augustus was born, in the time just before Christ, they called it the gospel. They announced his birth by calling it the gospel. He says, verse 4, Some of them were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas, and did a great, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. A bunch of people got saved. Paul came, he preached the gospel. A bunch of people got saved and accepted Christ. People should be excited. This should be cool. This is a religious movement. Verse 5, But the Jews were jealous. Taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. See, rent-a-mobs aren't new. They actually had rent-a-mobs in that day. They're like, oh, I thought that was just now. No, you can actually hire a mob of people and be like, we're ticked about this today. And they're like, we're ticked about what today? We're ticked about this Jesus thing today. All right, they're rioting, they're pillaging, they're burning stuff, they're flipping cars, right? They just get paid for it. Ah, you see? Some of the same things that were happening in this, the same people in Seattle. It says, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd, out to the crowd. They could not find them. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting. Now, this is really cool. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I know you think that started with the Hamilton musical, right? The world turned upside down. It didn't start with the Hamilton musical. It started with Paul. They're turning the world upside down. Wouldn't that be cool to have somebody say that about you? You're teaching the gospel. You're teaching people about Jesus. 
These people are turning the world upside down. But these folks aren't very excited about it. And he says this, verse 7, Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Subversive. The gospel of Jesus was antagonistic and subversive to the gospel of culture. There's always a religious status quo. And the good news of Jesus, the good news of God's word, the values, the worldviews, the Judeo-Christian ethic will always crash up against that secular worldview, that religious status quo. Jesus always challenges the religious status quo, and he's doing that today in our culture. Amen? This is what these men were up against. When you turn in your Bibles back over to 1 Thessalonians, it's been weeks or months. Paul started this church. He was there for three, maybe four weeks, three Sabbaths. He takes off. He goes to Berea, then Athens, and ends up in Corinth. And he'll spend about 18 months in Corinth. What most people believe is Paul leaves, and somewhere between Thessalonica and Corinth, that he sends Timothy back to this church because he's so concerned about this new church. They're just weeks or months old. These people just accepted Christ. And they're in the midst of this culture. And he sends Timothy back to make sure that they're okay. Then Timothy comes back to Paul while Paul is at Corinth. And in the time that Paul's there, he writes these two letters. Timothy comes back and has a positive, encouraging, strong report. That's the letter, 1 Thessalonians. Then when, Paul, when Timothy comes back and talks to Paul and gives him an encouraging report, Paul writes this letter. And then maybe just weeks later, he writes 2 Thessalonians again as well and puts them both together, and, and, and is teaching them. And in the midst of all of that, you have to realize that when Paul enters a city like Thessalonica, and he proclaims that there's a king, and it's not Caesar, that it's Jesus, when he proclaims that there's an ideology, and it's following Christ, and that looks far different than polytheism, and pantheism, and empire, emperor worship, and all of those things, that there is opposition and that there will always be opposition. That when the people in this town accepted Christ, they did so understanding that there was going to be opposition. That for some of them, their friends and family would ostracize them because they were now doing things that was against the empire. They were doing things that were subversive to Roman peace and Roman prosperity. The message of the gospel has always been countercultural. And here's how that relates to end times. In those hard times, in those tumultuous times, Christians have always looked to the Lord, have always looked to the second coming of the Lord. And that's the good thing. The problem is when these ideas and this theology becomes skewed. In times like the 1980s, in times like the Cold War, in times like the Gulf Wars, in times like really any war, the world wars before that, Vietnam, you named the war, in times like COVID and a major pandemic, we always see a resurgence of end times. Prophecy conferences, books on prophecy, all, videos, all the things. Now it's blogs and podcasts. Because there's always this renewed interest in the end times. And the goal is that we get it right. When we get it right, when our end times theology is correct, it's pushing us to live faithfully right now. If you ascribe to a theology of the end times that somehow has you at war with other people right now, you have erroneous end times theology. If you have an end times theology that tells you that you need to prepare for then and not care about now, erroneous theology. 
Some of the Thessalonians, as we're going to find out, were quitting their jobs and just abusing the system because they thought that the Lord would come at any time. End times theology is important, but good end times theology always drives us to live faithfully in the meantime. And that's why every message that we'll look at here will talk about living faithfully for the Lord in the meantime in very specific and very different ways. One of the things I, I probably had to make sure I, one other thing that I wanted to make sure that, that I talked about, as we're reading uh, 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians, uh, the city was important for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons that it was important is because religiously there were lots of different groups that were there. They did have the, like, the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, but emperor worship was a big deal. They called it imperial cult worship. And that was a big deal. And here's why that was important. Uh, Thessalonica was one of what was called a Roman free city. And that meant uh, that they got things like tax breaks. Now, how many of you like to pay taxes? You love to pay taxes. You're like, I can't wait for the government to take my money. It's really good. How many of you would like to see those card tabs reduced, by the way? Can I get an amen on that? There we go. Good. I knew I was speak. Some of you were asleep. I said, card tabs, you woke up. I got you. So in the, in the day, how it worked was this. You had Rome. It was like the center of everything. And the emperor was in Rome. And the emperor ruled all, right? And so you had all these different provinces and different regions. And one of the major reasons was the region of Macedonia, which is the one that we're talking about. There were a variety of different ones. And how it worked was this, that you in the region do good things for the empire, and the empire will take care of you. You worship the emperor, you do the things that they want you to do, you maintain Roman peace and Roman prosperity at all costs, and then the empire will take care of you with things like tax breaks and things like Roman roads, etc., etc. And so it's really important for these cities and for these regions to maintain their freedom, and the way that they maintain their freedom is to make sure that everybody played by the same rules. We believe the same gods, we worship the same things, we do things the same way. And when people came in and did something different, that was a threat. And it wasn't just a threat to like grandma and grandpa and what they've always believed. It was a threat to the whole system. And there are actually different evidences in that day where cities could lose that status because it was always, that's why they kicked all the Jews out of Rome. Or all, yeah, all the Jews out of Rome at, at one point because they were creating such an uproar, right? And people wanted peace and peace at all costs. And so when the gospel came in, like, that peace was threatened. So Thessalonica was a religiously important city. It was also economically important. You can study more about this on your own, but just, like, where it was located, uh, there was a great port. One of the four major Roman roads ran right through Thessalonica, so tons of people of all nationalities were coming through all the time. Economically, it was important. It was one of the great metropolises of that day. As a matter of fact, today it's, I think, the second or third largest city in Greece. It's called Thessaloniki which doesn't sound as cool as Thessalonica, but that's what they call it today. And it was socially important and economically, politically, it was important for all these different reasons. And so that helps us to understand, like when we start to talk about the people who were living there and what Paul tells them, like understand what they lived in the middle of. And maybe you're thinking, wow, so there was a big city with a lot of people and it was important for a lot of different reasons. This sounds like maybe the city of Seattle or some places that are around here. And you say, yeah, in some ways, it's very akin to that. A city where there's no home for Jesus, but there's home for lots of other gods. And so in verses 2 through 10, we get to look at what it means to live faithfully in the meantime. 
and to follow Jesus faithfully in the meantime. I'm going to do it a little bit differently today. I'm not going to give you like three, four points or whatever like that. I'll give you nine. What time is the game? No, I'm going to read through the whole text. I'm going to point some things out as we go. I'm not going to try to, to give you a list of things. There's nothing that's going to come up on the screen. Here's what I want you to see. How many of you are learn by example people? Like, like, like show me before you tell me. You learn by example people. I'm totally a learn by example guy. When I was learning how to preach, I did, took preaching classes and they would blah, 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 blah. I didn't learn a lot from the classes. I just started watching guys who I thought communicated really well and then talking to people and learning by, by that, like show me by example. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is all example. There's not a command in there. It's all this report that Paul is, Paul is going to write to the Thessalonians and say, hey, Timothy came after he visited you and here's what he reported. It's all one great big example. So what I don't want you to do is to try to take notes and make a checklist. Here's nine things that i got to do, and then I'll be faithful. I just want you to see the big picture this morning. I want you to see the big picture of a people who were being faithful in the midst of all that I just laid out, all that background. Here's people who were doing it right, who were living well. Did they have some issues and some problems? Yeah. But they were doing it well, and Paul's going to tell them that, and we can learn from their example. Verse 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your, number one, work of faith, number two, your labor of love, and number three, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's three out of nine knocked out right there. Not bad, right? You don't sound confident. First, a faith that works. Church, God's Word, the, the New Testament, always talks about a faith that works. Not a faith that, as James says, is dead. A faith that's just an intellectual assent. The demons believe in God, right? Not just an intellectual thing. A faith that actually works. If you're a fan of 90s Christian music, see if you can identify this quote. The single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but walk out the door and don't honor him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. DC talk, Jesus freak, come on, right? I see a couple heads nodding. And I think the theologian, I think his name is Brennan Manning, but he said that, that the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today, you're like, that was the 90s, that was an evil time. I agree, but 2023 is not much better, Right? That the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I go to church, amen, brother, woo! That acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but walk out the door, don't honor him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. What that is, is when my daughters go to, to school at, at the junior high or the high school, and somebody comes up to them and is like, oh, I'm a Christian too. And they're like, I've been going to school with you for three years, I would have never guessed that you're a Christian. <laughs> right? Yeah. Faith that works. James talks all about, we're not saved by our works. But if we have saving faith, guess what? It works. It does the things that faith is called to do. Closely related to that is this love that labors. Now, gentlemen, if your wife is, if you've been there in the room when your wife gave birth, you understand love that labors. Amen? Okay. I've been in the room. Okay? We got two for the price of one. It was a double labor of love. Yeah, but, but here's the deal. 
love is a cheap word, right? Like, love is a cheap word. Guys, we use love so much. I just love this Taco Bell. Really? Right? Love is a cheap word if it's not backed up with labor, if it's not backed up with, with works. Like, my kids could say, Dad, I love you, 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 as they're like completely, they don't ever do this, but as they're completely going the opposite direction, right? And disobeying. Love, the word love is cheap. But love that labors, that's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, isn't it? Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not boast. Like all of those action words. And those are some of the portrait of what it means to live faithfully for the Lord here in the meantime. That our faith is working in everyday life. That our love is laboring and we're doing good things for people. And then he talks about steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus. Or a hope that endures. A hope that endures. It's not just I hope so and I think so, but that our hope propels us. And you may have noticed that faith, hope, and love are all three present there. And those are the key themes for Paul in many places. He mentions hope at the end because it's a forward-thinking thing. But these are the anchors of the Christian life. That Faith and hope and love are the anchors of the Christian life. And let's have a faith that works and a love that labors and a hope that endures. Verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. This evidence or this mark is this. We have a gospel identity that produces gospel activity. That's big. But I'll, I'll unpack it. A gospel identity that produces gospel activity. Watch verse 4. For we know brothers, or brothers and sisters. Church, this is part of your gospel identity. That if you're a Christian, when we, when we talk about guests become friends and friends become family, we don't use that word family just because it's touchy-feely and it feels kind of nice, so I'm part of the family. I did a whole message at the beginning of the summer on the church's family because that is a key metaphor for the church. Do you know why that is? Because togetherness begets faithfulness. Right? Being together. Like we need each other. Christianity is not a solo sport. That we need each other. Part of your gospel identity, my gospel identity, is family of God, brothers and sisters. Part of that gospel identity is loved by God. You know what never occurred in Greco-Roman uh, imperial worship, worshiping of the emperor, or the pantheon of all those crazy gods that they named Marvel characters after? You know what never happened in the Egyptian pantheon of gods that they named Marvel characters after as well? You know what never happened in any of that? The gods never loved the people for no reason. That it was always the gods were at had wrath toward the people and the people had to propitiate, had to appease the wrath of the gods. And that the people just worked to appease the wrath of the gods and then when the gods' wrath was appeased, then they did nice things for the people. Very, very transactional. That's what sets the God of the Bible apart from all false gods. This is no transactional relationship. That your gospel identity is you are loved by God. Period. If you're a Christian, loved by God, not because you did so much, Romans 5.8, while we were still, what, pretty good people, like we were all right, 
while we were really getting the job done, Jesus Christ died for us. Like we were almost there on our, on our own. No, while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. That's your gospel identity. And then, then there's that real tricky word, chosen. You know, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And, and we all know that chosen means that like he chose me because I chose him. No, that's not what it means. I hate to tell you this. That chosen in the Bible is not like chosen on the dodgeball field, right? It's not like God lined everybody up and he's like, that guy is big, tall, and strong. I want him on my team. Uh, that guy, not so much. You take him, right? That's not how chosen works. Chosen without any merit of your own, without anything that you've done on your own. Guys, that's your gospel identity. And you know what you can do with that? You can lean on that so that it produces these activities. He says, our gospel, verse 5, came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says, this wasn't some guy standing up there talking at you. And when that guy talked, that it did something in your heart. And it wasn't just from that guy. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 are clear about this, and I want us all to be clear if there's ever anybody, myself or anybody else, standing on the stage, the Bible is open, and we're preaching and teaching, and you feel something, it challenges you, it encourages you, it convicts you, it does something in your life, that is not me. That is not Pastor Lauren. That is not a guest speaker. That's not a blog. That's not a sermon that you heard online. That's the Spirit of God using the Word of God to change the people of God. Okay? That's how change works. And then our gospel identity produces gospel activities. And he says that the gospel, that his words came with power and with the Holy Spirit. It also says, verse 6, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We already talked about this. It wasn't easy for them. There was lots of affliction but they had joy in the midst of it. You know one of, the, one of the ways that we can tell if you're faithfully following Jesus in the meantime? How angry are you at culture? How angry are you when you turn on the news? Ooh, sorry, now we're preaching, right? How mad do I get at everybody else? How much do I whine and fuss and cry and complain about how terrible? The world's going to hell in a handbasket. And I used that in the first service, and I said, I don't know what it means. And Ryan Buzak, thankfully, Googled it and came up and told me all about what it means. I won't bore you with it here, but it's interesting. If you, if that's all we do, if that's all we do is we, we're like, oh, it's so hard to be a Christian in this world because all these people are so evil and terrible and awful and bad. This world's going to hell in a handbasket. That is not a lot of spirit-filled joy and affliction, is it? But Paul says one of the ways that we can tell that you're living faithfully is because you're going through it but you got a smile on your face. You're going through it, but you're happy, right? You're watching Fox News and you're still smiling. Oh, yeah, okay. I get it now. They had Fox News back then, I think. He says, verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. I love this. In verse 6, he says that you became imitators of us and then verse 7, he says, then you became examples. This is something called multi-level discipleship, right? You became imitators of us, and then you became examples to other people. Discipleship is very simple. Here it is. Ready? Who are you leading? Who are you following? 
That's discipleship. Who are you leading? Who are you following? To disciple somebody else means to, to lead them, to lead them spiritually, to lead them toward the Lord. Men, who are we leading? We're leading our wives. We're leading our families, number one. We're leading our church. Who are you leading? And then number two, who are you following? You know where I have the problem? I don't have a problem in the who am I leading. You know where I have a problem? Who am I following? Because I'm a guy. I don't want to follow anybody, right? Like I'll pull into the other lane so I don't have to follow you. Yeah, we don't like to follow people, but here's the deal. I can't lead well unless I'm following well. And yes, I need to be following Jesus, but I mean from a temporal perspective. Here's what I need. God has tasked me with spiritual leadership of this congregation. He's tasked me before that with leadership of my daughters. He's tasked me even before that with leading my wife well. I need other men, other people in my life who are older, wiser, more mature than me, that I can follow them as I'm leading my family so I can see how it's done. Who am I leading and who am I following? That's another mark of just following Jesus faithfully. Verse 8, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth, that means an echo, the idea of an echo, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we not, need not say anything. There's this reverberating testimony of their faithfulness. They had a reputation as a church, a corporate reputation as a church, they're not even that old. It's not even a very old church, but they've got this corporate reputation that this is a good church, that this is a godly, this is a faithful church. I've got a really cool story to tell you uh, related to that. And that, this sermon was prepared before the story ever happened. But this past week, I was getting phone calls, actually, for the last couple weeks on my cell phone, and it was a number that I didn't recognize. And I did what we all do, and I ignored it, Right? Then I get a, num a call from a different number with a message, and I didn't have time to get back to the message, and it transcribed weird as I looked at it. And then the phone rang again, and my wife picked it up and answered it, and she's like, oh, here, you might want to take this. And it was a pastor from a Russian church, a Russian-speaking church, Church of Transfiguration, it's a Russian Baptist church in East Tacoma. And he said, and these are his words, not mine, so argue with him, not me, but he said, over the last several weeks, we've been sending some Russian spies to different churches. And we had noticed that there were some different folks that were here like at different times and they were here for a week and then, and then they were gone. He said, we've been sending some spies to different churches because we're doing ministry in East Tacoma. We're reaching Russians, but we're also reaching English speaking people and we don't have anything English speaking to offer, but English speaking people are being reached and we want a good church that we can send these people to. And he said, we sent people to like 10 different, at least 10 different churches in their East Tacoma area, and then out from there to a bunch of other like-minded churches, and we want to partner with your church. Like, I like get goosebumps a little bit, right? Because it's not like we're better than everybody else. It's really not we're better than everybody else. But as I've been studying this, I'm like, here's a like-minded church that's looking for a church that has been faithful to the Lord, faithful to God's word, faithful to what God's called them to do. And another church in East Tacoma is like, hey, we want to minister together with you because we've seen that you've been faithful. Guys, that's a reputation that we want to have. You know, churches get reputations in communities, right? You know what reputation I want us to have? That's a church that's being faithful to the Lord and His Word. That's, not, that's the political church. Not like that's the outreach church. Not Definitely not that's the cool church, 
We wouldn't have to worry about that. I get it, right? That's the faithful church. He says it's sounding forth throughout the world, like throughout the, the, the known world at that time. That's what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus. By the way, that whole partnership thing, like to be continued, right? We're, uh, we met with him. Mike and I met with, met with the pastor yesterday and, and his, some of his deacons. It was really cool. It was fun. I can't wait to see what God does through that. But praise the Lord that there's a reputation of some faithfulness that's going on here. Verse 9, it says this. We're going quick. Don't worry. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reputation that we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, that they turned to God, that there was a noticeable and real change. They, just, they didn't just add Jesus to the rest of the other gods, that they got rid of all of that stuff and they started following Jesus. And then finally, verse 10, he says, and to wait for his son from heaven. Here comes that end time stuff. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Patient longing for the Lord's return is another evidence of faithfulness and faithfully following Jesus. And he commends them for looking forward to the Lord's return. So church, I commend you, look forward to the Lord's return, but allow that to push you toward faithfulness right now. The challenge is this. If you're a Christian here today, man, I hope that this is actually like an encouragement to you. You can say we live in a tough time. We live in a time where there's always going to be opposition to the gospel and to the, uh, to the Christian worldview. But we can be faithful till the Lord's return. If you're here and you're not a Christian, man, I encourage you and challenge you to keep searching, keep asking questions, keep seeking out Jesus, talk to us. Ultimately, I would challenge you to, to admit your sin and confess your, that you're a sinner and accept Christ as your Savior and start looking forward to His return. Because those last words are kind of scary. The wrath to come. We'll get to that, by the way. Finally, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you. This is one of Paul's most joyful letters, his most thankful letter. And he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. In my office, I have a little sign. I got it from Home Goods, of course, but it says uh, from Philippians, I thank my God every time that I remember you in all of my prayers. And I said this to the first service, and I want to say it to you. For myself and for Lauren, we thank God for this church. We thank God for the faithfulness of this church. I thank God that I can look out here and I can see people who have been, I mean, Jim Barry, 150 years faithful at the church. Praise Jesus. Praise the Lord, right? But all of these couples, these families, you guys who have been here for years and years and years and has been faithful to the Lord, that this church has sat on this corner and for all the things that have gone on that the word of God has been here and faithfully proclaimed and praise the Lord, 60 years and another 60 or more if the Lord doesn't come. But I just want to say thank you um, that it's a privilege to be your pastor and it's a privilege to, to follow the Lord faithfully together. I ask you to stand with me. I'm going to close this in prayer this morning. Uh, if God's spoken to you in any way, you need any help uh, with anything, fill out the Connect card there, use the QR code, and we'll get in touch with you. Let's pray. God, it is a privilege. You know the privilege uh, to stand before a faithful congregation and collectively we admit that, that we have faults, that we have issues, that sometimes we get uh, frustrated with each other. We definitely get frustrated with the outside world. 
Um, and so, sometimes our theology gets a little weird, um, but God, I am thankful that we have a church who loves you, who loves your word, who wants to follow you faithfully. God, I pray as we journey through this book, that even just today, seeing in this first chapter, this picture, this portrait of a, a group of people who were, were faithful to you, that that would be an encouragement, and that each week you would continue to encourage us, that in the meantime, as we live here and we do what you called us to do, that we would see what it looks like to just to be faithful to you as we await your return. And God, we do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. God, as the Apostle John prayed at the end of Revelation, please come quickly, but also keep us faithful in the meantime. God, keep us faithful this week, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.